Thank you and greetings to you all. And thank you very much for joining us for what I think should be an excellent and very exciting webinar. We have a great program lined up here. My name is David Parker. I'm the president of Visicos, and along with my co-chair, Patrick Jung from Hong Kong, the secretary of APCAS, I'd like to welcome you to this combined Visicos and APCAS webinar on the management of ACL injuries. Thank you for joining us. And thank you in particular to our wonderful faculty who are going to give some fantastic talks. Uh, we have Raisuke Kuroda from Japan, uh, James Robinson from the United Kingdom, Seth Sherman from the United States, Maria Tuka from Chile, and Junho Wang from the Republic of Korea. So a fantastic international group of experts to help uh, you work your way around the management of these ACL injuries. So on that note, I'd like to hand over to my co-chair, Patrick Jung, uh, to go through the program with you. And please don't hesitate to send through your questions. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you, David. Right. So um, this uh, um, webinar is uh, co-organized by Isacost and Epcast, right? So I quickly introduce our, you know, um, uh, panels uh, speak, speaker today, right? So uh, first of all, we have uh, uh, James Robinson from Bristol, UK. So he's going to talk about conservative management of ACL injury and primary healing, who can be managed non-operatively. And then we'll move on to the topic of uh, who is suitable for a direct repair from uh, Jeff Sermon from uh, Stanford, uh, uh, USA. And then uh, we'll go back to talk about who really needs a reconstruction rather than a repair by Rasoki Kuruda from Kobe. And then, um, and then apart from uh, talking about repair and reconstructions, we'll move on to talk about who needs more than a reconstructions about the ALL, the MET, osteotomy or others by Joe Ho Wang from Samsung Medical Center of uh, Seoul. And last but not the least, we also touch on the adolescents. So we have the talk of ACL tears in adolescents. Don't trick like little adults by Maria Tucker from San Diego, Chile. And we hope that uh, we can finish within like, uh, 50 something minutes and then we'll, uh, we'll have another like, um, no, 15 to 27 minutes for discussion and Q&A. Okay, without further ado, I would like to invite James, right, to start his talk, right, James? Hi there. Great, so I hope uh, that you guys can see the screen. Um, and thank you very much for asking me to talk about who can be managed conservatively. So in the next seven minutes, I hope to be able to shed some light on the very reasonable question that patients often ask us, and hopefully show you that ACL injury does not always mean surgery. And these are the kind of uh, things that should be on your mind in influencing your decision-making about whether or not to take a patient to, to theatre. Now, we're going to look initially at some of the randomised controlled evidence on this. Um, and uh, first, of course, the Canon study, which reported at two years in 2010 and at five years in 2013. This was a uh, randomized controlled study of 121 adults uh, with acute ACL ruptures, and they were randomized to either structured rehabilitation or able to cross over, unable to cross over into surgery or to early surgery. Now, the key findings of this was that there was no difference in outcome at either two or five years between the two groups, and that 51% of patients randomized to rehab crossed over 40% within two years. And that led to the authors to conclude that ACL reconstruction was not superior to structured rehabilitation. And of course, if you're a health commissioner of a public health service, like we have in the UK, 
they then reasoned that it would be very reasonable to offer rehab to every patient with an ACL rupture. Now, look, there have been entire editorials written on the problems with this paper. But mind being beef with it is if you look at the laxity results, they're pretty poor. And Leo would have always said, Leo Pincheski would have said, unless you're getting a reconstruction within two millimeters, you're not doing much good. And that reconstruction laxity of seven millimeters effectively equates to a NAV normal ACL. So they're, I think, comparing not very good ACL surgery to structured rehab. Now, the more, much more recent compare study was much better in terms of anterior laxity. And this was a bigger study than Canon. It again included patients of Tegna 5 to 9, but not professional sportsmen with Tegna 10. And it also used the IKDC as an outcome measure. And this showed a statistically significant difference uh, for ACL reconstruction done early compared to structured rehab. But interestingly, they said that that difference was not clinically important at two years. There were differences in terms of the ACLs uh, uh, for ACL reconstruction, favoring ACL reconstruction for the uh, sports score um, and also uh, better for the, for the Lishol. Um, now, you know, if we go back to um, subsequent papers, again published last year, where they've tried to then drill down into some of the patients and who does better with this, what we've shown is that when they looked at the 82 patients randomized to rehab, the 50% of those who converted to an ACL reconstruction were nearly a decade younger, were more likely to have injured their knee playing sport, and tended to have a higher pre-injury Tegna score. Now, it's really important to remember that these two RCTs have focused on acute ACL and acute rehab. And this 2021 study showed that patients who begin their non-operative therapy within two weeks from injury are more likely to go on to no or low-grade instability compared to those who start treatment later. And also, if the initial stability exam is low, they are again more likely to do better and remain with low level instability or no instability. Now, if we go back to 2005, I was involved in this study looking at whether sportsmen with a complete ACL rupture could return to the same level of sport following either conservative management or primary healing. Uh, sadly, I was on my fellowship in France and we published in a rather obscure French journal in, in, in French. But we took 298 sportsmen with a complete isolated ACL rupture that was acute. That was defined by having a grade two pivot shift and an abnormal Lachman. They were all then braced for two months and entered into a conservative rehab program aimed at minimizing strain on the anterior cruciate ligament all were then reassessed at two months. At that reassessment, 248, the vast majority remained unstable, but 50 had returned either a normal, had returned to a normal Lachman and had either subtle or no pivot shift laxity. We then put all of those patients through an MRI, 10 weeks post-injury, and 11, the ACL had healed to the PCL, but in nearly 40 patients, the ACL had apparently healed with fibers now lying parallel to the Blumenstadt's line. Those patients were then given a further two-month program of rehab and then returned to sports at four months post-injury. 
What was stark was that the recurrence of instability was very dependent on the competitive level of the sportsman. So the French class of competitive athlete is a semi-professional professional athlete performing more than two training sessions a week. And you can see a very high rate of uh, instability, but for the occasional athletes, very low levels of recurrent instability. So we know that the patient's sporting level and when they go on to this primary healing, that is important. Now, interestingly, a sub-analysis of the Canon RCT has also showed that patients randomized to rehab who did not cross over to ACL reconstruction from the rehab arm also had an MRI showing evidence of healing in 50% of cases. So the ACL can heal. Now, this was a case that I've been involved with just this week. This was her MRI a year ago following a skiing injury. She's a 45-year-old uh, lady. You can see a typical pivot shift bone bruise pattern and ACL injury. She elected for conservative treatment. And here is her MRI nine months later. The pivot shift bone bruise is gone. And I would say that ACL looks pretty good. Now, I ended up having to do an arthroscopy uh, recently for her, last actually this week. And you can see that ACL uh, there. And I suspect that ACL looks rather better than some of the reconstructions and repairs that you may be able to see in later talks. And that is th done through primary healing. Now, I've talked to you about patients with acute ACL injury, having acute reconstruction or acute rehab. What about the chronic patient? The patient who comes with recurrent instability. And this was the subject of the ACL SNAP study undertaken in the UK and published in the Lancet last year. It looked at patients who um, had gone on uh, to uh, having had instability, being then referred in, and whether they would benefit from a structured rehab program or whether or not they would be better off with early surgery. So you can see here is the outline of the study. So exactly the same as the two previous studies that around RCT, you're either re, re, um, randomized to ACL reconstruction or to a structured rehab and can cross over into ACL reconstruction. Now, what was interesting was for this group, surgery did seem to improve the outcomes. And you can see here that the end, the 18 month CUS4 score was higher for patients undergoing surgery than those who were given rehab. But what's interesting is although the surgery patients did report there were higher levels of saying that they were better than before, look at the middle graph there, you can see that 71% of patients who underwent the structured rehab said they would go through the same program of treatment again. So we can say that for surgery averse patients that it is very reasonable to treat them with conservative management, even if they have uh, presented delayed with instability symptoms. So after that whistle-stop tour in seven minutes, looking at conservative management, what I can say to you is that the evidence suggests that it certainly can work well for patients with lower grades of laxity, interstitial tears seen on MRI, for our older patients who have lower levels of activity and start into a rehab program early. It is less likely to work for the younger patients trying to return to the same level of high level pivoting sports participation. Many thanks for your attention. Excellent. So uh, greetings from United States. It's quite uh, early here, but I've had my coffee and I'm ready to go. Uh, my task is uh, to address who is suitable for an ACL repair 
Uh, my disclosures are available online, and it'll be interesting in the discussion to compare and contrast some of the indications uh, for non-operative treatment with some of the indications for, for this talk uh, and uh, contrast them with the ones who uh, clearly uh, need uh, reconstructions. Um, this uh, repair topic is very hot right now. Uh, we just finished AOSSM uh, in DC. I was privileged to be part of a uh, panel uh, exploring many of uh, these issues with uh, some other American um, thought leaders. Uh, and so hopefully we'll share kind of our take here. Uh, there was also um, several papers, but one in particular that was presented last week, um, kind of reiterating some of the times where repair might fail at a higher rate, uh, particularly younger age patients, uh, and the concept or issue of tibial slope uh, comes up uh, as well. And so I think if we're going to treat people non-op or with repair, we definitely want to take inventory, be mindful about what their risk factors are um, before we go down this pathway uh, versus our standard of care or gold standard or reconstructions. Um, I want to uh, turn your attention to this Orthopedics Today article that came out last week. Um, and uh, it was uh, Rachel Frank kind of leading the way as usual, and uh, some of her um, concepts uh, are embedded within my talks. So I thank her, but also my peer group uh, here that you see. Uh, some have been involved uh, with uh, bear uh, trials, and uh, others just have a good broad perspective on this, and I'll give uh, kind of my take from the article as we go through uh, here today. Um, so what's the, the challenges or issues? Um, we clearly know ACL reconstruction is good, but it's not perfect uh, in 2023. Uh, what's imperfect about it? Well, certainly return to sport rates, uh, both in the non-elite and the elite athlete uh, can be um, less than optimal or ideal. We're not getting everyone back to their level of activity. There's clearly donor site morbidity. We can talk about the different graft choices, quad, hamstring, BTB, allograft, and other, um, but it's definitely not close to zero, and it's something we need to talk to with our patients. And the big black box is really the risk of osteoarthritis. I don't think any of us would sit up here and say, we do a reconstruction. You're not going to get arthritis compared to your other knee or compared to other people. And so this is kind of the avenues and areas of opportunity. So what are the perceived advantages of a repair? Why do we even have a 10 minute talk on this? Well, obviously there's no donor site morbidity uh, from the graphs. Uh, it is less invasive. Some tout an easier recovery of pain, range of motion, strength early on, preservation of native ACL mechanoreceptors. Um, uh, and, um, you know, I think those are all things to think about. Um, uh, other possible advantages that I think would turn a lot more heads uh, if we could prove this over time uh, is the safety and efficacy of an accelerated rehabilitation and earlier return to sport. These are huge question marks. Um, uh, and as I said, the holy grail is that reduced risk of osteoarthritis. Uh, and these are more questions than answers um, uh, in the current uh, state. So let's go back to go forward. Um, uh, ACL repair is not new, like many things in our field. It's been around over a hundred plus years. Um, John Fagan, a great mentor to us all in the ACL study group, uh, presented his two-year data, which was encouraging in 1972. And then nothing ruins uh, uh, data like follow-up and uh, his five-year follow-up was definitely less than encouraging. 
uh, and you can see the rates of instability, pain, stiffness, re-injury. Um, and so that gave a more guarded perspective. Uh, Lars Engelbretson also had a series um, in 1989 uh, with a 25% uh, failure rate. And so um, kind of flash forward into the 80s and 90s. Um, uh, this is my dad, Mark Sherman, who I'm very um, you know, proud of for uh, this uh, work, um, uh, basically following on uh, the work of John Marshall uh, and taking into his own patients in practice and really developing uh, the classification that's been revamped somewhat now, but is quite useful uh, to this date, um, identifying those type one tears, the peel off uh, of the femur, and then all the way down to type twos, threes, uh, and uh, fours. Uh, I think what's most interesting and relevant uh, to our discussion here um, is really um, the ability to categorize by ACL tear type and tissue uh, quality. And so really able to hone in on who might do well with a repair. And I think a lot of these uh, factors um, hold true to this day. And particularly for me, as I evolve into proximal repairs with modern techniques, as I'll show you, and also into considerations for bare implantation, you know, I'm still thinking about these relatively older patients, these type one tears, concomitant low-grade MCL injuries, adequate tissue um, quality. Uh, he noticed that the skiers have a bit different pattern uh, that may have been more amenable uh, to repair. So good things to keep in our mind. Uh, I think the key point uh, for us is that every tear is different. Uh, I don't think anyone uh, around the world here would treat the one on the left with a repair, maybe a few people, but I wouldn't. Uh, but the one on the right, in the right patient, you know, it's a shame to take down all of that tissue and to do a uh, less natural, less preserving uh, surgery uh, versus a repair. And so it's food for thought. Uh, but the most important concept is that everyone uh, should customize their treatments. So I'm going to run through very briefly. Uh, some of the techniques, uh, some I'm familiar with and others I'm not. Uh, the first we'll cover is dynamic interligamentary stabilization. Uh, you can basically see what this looks like in the cartoon on the right and in the picture down below. There's basically a braided wire intraarticular with femoral suspensory fixation. Uh, and kudos to these authors uh, who did their diligence and they did do comparative uh, prospective and randomized study. They looked at 85 patients. They had two-year two follow-up initially with a good follow-up rate. You can see on the right that basically those um, uh, subjective scores, activity scores, uh, were all quite good across the board. Kudos to them again for trying to follow them up longer as we saw those outcomes deteriorate at longer follow-up. And again, they really did not see any significant uh, or major differences uh, in those groups uh, carried out uh, to the longer time point. Uh, you can see the adverse events uh, as well uh, were uh, quite uh, similar uh, within the group. So um, while I have no experience with this, uh, you know, I think um, uh, it kind of was uh, articles out there to support the possibility uh, of repair or augmented repair as an option. Here we kind of flash forward to some of the more familiar techniques, at least in America, that people are using uh, for their primary repairs, uh, championed by Greg D. Felice uh, here in the U.S. and Gordon Mackey and others. Uh, you can see anchor fixation for the femoral footprints. Uh, we can see also um, the utilization uh, of suspensory fixation. We can see the use of non-absorbable sutures uh, evolving uh, into the use of tapes and similar patches devices that we use for root repairs um, uh, or things that we would use in the shoulder adapted to ACL primary repair. Um, and so, um, you know, this is kind of uh, a um, technique and technology that continues to evolve 
Um, here's kind of just a very brief look at the surgical technique. Uh, if I'm doing proximal primary repair, this is the technique that I typically would utilize. Uh, so it's suture passage device, a luggage tag sutures, two of them, usually with uh, tapes uh, these days. And then I'm able to load those onto a suspensory button. We can bring the button uh, into the joint and flip it on the far cortex. Uh, and then you can deliver that ACL into your healing bed. You can tension that in extension. And then we can also make a secondary um, uh, uh, passage through the tibia uh, for your suture augmentation of choice. And so you can see here that we have stable fixation for early range of motion, which I think is critical. Uh, and you wanna leave the operating room with that 1A Lachlan and that negative pivot shift, or you need to do something different. And so if you look at some of the more recent uh, data, we can certainly spend all day picking apart, um, you know, some of the uh, um, levels of evidence in some of these papers. Uh, but I think the gist is that, um, you know, the majority are reporting success with relatively low re-rupture rates, revision rates, and improvement in patient-reported outcomes. Many of these are not prospective, randomized, head-to-head, long-term, mixed bag of patients. So, I mean, there's a lot of questions more than answers, um, but certainly uh, not devastating or catastrophic results using these modern techniques. I think timing of surgery always comes up just to briefly kind of talk about this and look at this. Um, in general, I think sooner is better than later, um, but I think tissue quality might prevail. Uh, and uh, really, in, in, when you look at this, uh, there were similar outcomes between the acute uh, and the delayed uh, groups. Um, and so uh, some food for thought and continuing to challenge some of the uh, older dogma. Uh, we've talked a ton about mechanics. We're going to pivot now at the end uh, towards uh, biologics. And I think that brings us uh, to the bear. Uh, this is the brainchild of the great Martha Murray, who spent decades bringing this from bench to bedside. This is a bovine collagen scaffold uh, that is soaked in whole blood. It is hoisted into the joint alongside ACL primary repair with suspensory fixation. Uh, and um, uh, kudos to them. They've really gone through the uh, academic and scientific journey of discovery that has led to a non-inferiority study versus hamstring, um, as you can see to the right. Uh, this recently led uh, to our FDA uh, approval. Here's the study here. Uh, it was 100 uh, patients. Uh, and so now these uh, bare implants are being put into patients for commercial use in America not just in big academic centers, but all across the country in different settings. Uh, I have not done one yet. I am uh, part of the Bear Registry and have patients who are very interested. And when I find the right patient over this quarter, uh, I will likely get my first bears in. I've done these in the lab and I've talked to many uh, friends who've done these already and obviously Martha about it. Um, I think one thing that I'm really looking forward to uh, is Bear Moon, which is comparing to bone tendon bone. Uh, and I think that kind of information particularly if we're trying to extend our indications of proximal primary repair towards more mid-substance, towards younger patients, towards more active patients, we definitely need um, uh, to have data such as bare moon, so stay tuned for that. So in summary, um, uh, this is kind of where I'm at uh, based on the evidence. Um, typically, I'm not repairing people younger than 35, but definitely a hard line for me, I think, would be 25. I'm trying to get to these people within a month, but really not trying to stretch uh, more than 50 days if I can help it. I'm repairing mostly type 1 tears, but a type 2 uh, is not unreasonable. 
I want patients with no meniscus pathology or menisci that are clearly repairable with 90 plus percent chance of healing. Uh, I don't like patients with coronal or sagittal laxity. I really don't like the hyperextenders. I don't want them to have a physiologic pivot glide on the other side. And so these really need to be patients who go from zero to 140, uh, who are a bit more quote unquote tight jointed. I'm good with the low grade MCL tear. That's a injury pattern alongside ACL that I think uh, has proven track record for healing with primary repair, maybe sometimes with non-op treatment um, and certainly no other high grade laxity. Tibial slope normal or near normal. Uh, no high grade pivot shifts. I think that's a no for me. So I always can send people for repair versus reconstruction uh, when I'm in the operating room, uh, just so that I can look at tissue quality and really make my final decision. I still like patients with reasonable activity demand, those skiers, non-elite athletes. Uh, and I do not promise the moon. I do not tell them we're going to get better faster. I say you're going to go slow and steady, and it might be a slower and steadier course even than my reconstruction patients uh, because I'm more cautious. Uh, if they're willing to do that, then I'm willing to entertain it in the right patients. And then I'll just leave you with some things from the article. Um, you know, really my main points were that we have all these tools in the toolbox, but we still really have to stick to evidence-based medicine when making our decisions. I'm intrigued by repair because of preservation of the native tissue, proprioception. I'm intrigued by the possibility of earlier return to sport and much more so by reducing the risk of osteoarthritis over time. Uh, I'm definitely guarded uh, on the treatment of high level or elite athletes uh, in this space. And we really need to get together as a group uh, if we're going to try to tackle that. Uh, and then I think at the end of the day, uh, ACL reconstruction, which is the topic of the next several talks is still king. Um, but uh, we're not perfect in 2023. We should exploit um, those gaps in biology and biomechanics. Uh, and we might be able to do great things in repair together over the next several decades. So I will um, stop sharing now and I look forward to an active uh, discussion. Thank you. So uh, my name is Ryosuke Kurodao, the next speaker. I will share my slides. Okay, uh, my name is Ryosuke Kuroda from Kobe, Japan. Uh, it's a great honor uh, for me to be here today. Uh, I wanna talk about uh, who needs a reconstruction. So this is my disclosure. So uh, this is AAOS recommendation, surgery, is usually recommended for the patient who are uh, involved in pivoting sport activities and the recurrent giving way of the knee during uh, daily uh, activity. Uh, Non-surgical management of isolated ACL tear may be recommended in patient with uh, partial tear and no instability, complete tear who don't experience symptom of knee instability uh, during low demand sports and who do light manual work. So uh, the active adult patients who are involved in sports or job that require pivoting, turning or hard cutting and who perform heavy manual work. Activity level, not age, should determine whether surgery should be considered. So this is the systematic review and meta-analysis published 2014. 
20% of ACL injured knee had moderate or severe radiographic changes, KL grade three or four, compared with uninjured ACL intact contralateral knees, just only 4.9%. So ACL injury predisposes knees to osteoarthritis. ACL reconstruction surgery has a role in reducing the risk of uh, osteoarthritis. Another paper published in 2016, uh, this is a population-based cohort study, 364 patients with new onset isolated ACL tears compared with sex-matched cohort of same number, 364 individuals without ACL tears, follow-up 14.3 years. And you can see early ACL reconstruction significantly uh, reduced the medial meniscus tear and osteoarthritis. You can see the blue line is early ACL reconstruction and green line is delayed ACL reconstruction and the yellow line is non-operative case. So the non-operative case and delayed ACL reconstruction is uh, significantly higher instance of osteoarthritis. And this is patient treated with ACL reconstructions, lower risk of TKA compared with uh, non-operative uh, SL tears. You can see the blue line, RESL reconstruction is almost same as a control group, uh, the black line. And you can see the significantly high risk in non-operative uh, patient. So how about ACL primary repair that the Dr. Seth Sherman reported uh, uh, mentioned that the first report of ACL repair is 18th century. And after that, there are several uh, publications. But in 2019, KSSTA, uh, primary repair of ACLs, real innovation or reinvention of the wheel. So the, still the indication is not clear and also the hearing process is not, not clear. So in my opinion, is still skeptical. So who needs a reconstruction? Of course, high-risk patient, we need ACL reconstruction, such as female, high-grade pivot, joint laxity, abnormal tibial slope. And also uh, we should avoid the chronicity. We published this paper in 2019, and uh, the positive correlation between anterior tibial subluxation rate and the time from injury to surgery. So medial meniscus injury was significantly uh, high in the chronic case. So uh, our results suggested that the ACL reconstruction should be performed at least within six months to avoid anterior subluxation, to avoid medial meniscus injury. As you know, ACL injury is not only ACL injury, 20% pivot positive even after ACL reconstruction. So concomitant injury with ACL injury, such as meniscus injury, articular cartilage injury, MCL injury, posterolateral structure injury, anterolateral structure injury. So the meniscus injury, the 
rump lesion is a very uh, important uh, concomitant uh, injury. So about 15 to 30% of ACL injury has a rump lesion. This is vertical tear, posterior horn of the medial meniscus. But diagnosis of the medial meniscus rump lesion is difficult by preoperative MRI. So we should be very carefully look at the, the joint, uh, sometimes using a transnotch view or posterior medial portal uh, to detect the rump lesion. And why do we need to repair? ACL tear plus rump lesion increase rotatory and anterior laxity. And when should we repair the rump lesion? Uh, Sonari Kote reported that all rump lesions should be repaired. And now trend is uh, rump lesion should be repaired. And how about the antilateral complex injury? You know, in 2013, uh, Kulas reported that the uh, antilateral structure, antilateral ligament injury was ACL injury. So this second fracture is a Valgian fracture of antilateral structure. So uh, ACL injury sometimes uh, combined with uh, antilateral structure. And uh, Sonari Kota reported 2017 that ACL reconstruction plus Antilateral ligament reconstruction, better long term ACL graft survivorship. Uh, isolated ACL reconstruction had a five fold increased risk of revision surgery. And GetGood reported that the lateral extra articular tenodesis reduces uh, failure of hamstrings, tendon, autograft ACL reconstruction. Uh, probably uh, Dr. Junho one will. Uh, present uh, this kind of uh, uh, extra articular reconstruction. So I will show you the case. Uh, 45 year old female, he injured ACL uh, during volleyball five years ago, and uh, she stopped playing volleyball and just do light manual work, and she didn't receive reconstruction. But five years later, locking, just, just during walking. Uh, so we, I did the ACL reconstruction and medial meniscal repair. And 10 years after surgery, the little uh, joint space narrowing the medial side, but uh, she's fine, very stable. She returned back to volleyball. This is another case, 85-year-old uh, male. Uh, he was a professional soccer player. He injured ACL during the game when he was 30 years old and he returned back to play, uh, just a few giving way. And he retired when he was 35 years old. And 57 years later, feeling instability and sometimes catching during golfing. Uh, alignment is, is not bad, so I did the ACL reconstruction and partial medial meniscectomy, and he is fine. He returned back to uh, golf. So the, my conclusion is all the patient who injured ACL needs reconstruction within six months after injury to avoid chronicity, to avoid medial meniscus injury, avoid cartilage injury, and reduce the risk 
of uh, uh, arthritis reduce the risk of TKA. Thank you very much. Thank you for your attention. Yeah, can uh, this this is my turn. So today's my topic is who needs more than Asia reconstructions. I'm Jun Ho Wang, Samsung Medical Center, Seoul, Korea. So this is my, my topic, who needs more than Asia reconstruction? So patient with high re-rupture risk, so maybe they need something else. Who has high re-rupture risk? Those are risk factors of high re-rupture risk. Re-rupture risk can be reclassified like that. Constitutional problem, such as general rising laxity and constitutional virus increase posterior slope, and also secondary change after Asian injuries, osteoarthritis, aggravation of virus, and total loss of meniscus. Also, severity of Asian injury and activity level is important, such as high-grade fever shift and fevering spots and young and active and revisional cases. In case of general rising laxity, on high-grade people shift and people exports, uh, ARL reconstruction or LET is necessary. In, in case of constitutional valves and increased posterior slope and osteoarthritis after ACL injury, in that case, HTO is necessary. Loss of meniscus, MAT is a solution. Today's contents are ACL reconstruction and ALN reconstruction, second MAT, third HTO. First, I'm going to talk about ALN reconstruction. Who needs ALN reconstruction with ACL reconstruction? Those are risk factor. If they have the risk factor, ALN reconstruction is necessary. Why ALN reconstruction is necessary? By adding ALN, it provides more control for internal rotation. Increased level arm from the center of rotation, so less force needed to control internal rotation. But we can encounter the collision of two tunnels, ACL and ALN. We divide into two groups and analyze the ALN tunnel direction. First group is transverse group, Second group is distally and anteriorly directed group. We found transverse group has a convergence rate is 62, 64.8, but distally anteriorly directed group, 36.6% has a convergence. We analyzed the ALA tunnel angles. We analyzed ALA distal angle and anterior directed angle. Black dot is a convergence group overlapping, white dot is non-convergence group, no overlapping. If the distal angle is, is more than 24.3, there is no overlapping. Anterior angle is more than 25.3, no overlapping. This, this zone seems to be safe zone to avoid overlapping of two tunnel. I will show you my technique. I modified the sonary quartet technique usually use autographed, sometimes use allograft. This is video. I make a femoral one, femoral tunnel, and two tibial tunnel, and glassless autograph is usually used. 
from femoral epicondyle and gaudius tubercle, fibula head is used as a bony random marker. Two tibial tunnel is made between gaudius tubercle and fibula head, and femoral tunnel is made around the epicondyle. Two separate incisions is made for the tibial tunnel. Guide pin is inserted. After then, six millimeter lemur is used to make a two tibial tunnel. Right angle cramp is inserted from anterior to posterior to connect two tunnel. And it is inserted to, to posterior tunnel and directed anteriorly. Two tunnel is connected. AC joint graft passing instrument is used to passing the suture loop. Suture loop is inserted uh, through anterior tunnel and directed posteriorly. Loop side is placed in posterior tunnel for the passing of the graft from the posterior to anterior tunnel. And three millimeter size, three centimeter size incision is made proximal to the epicondyle, and ITB was splitted, and guide pin is inserted. Length change is measured. Uh, the length should be longer when it is extended. When it is getting shorter, the femoral tone fin should be moved proximally and posteriorly. And we, we should find the point and me measure the length change excursion and usually longer and extended. Femoral tunnel is made using five millimeter limo. After then, end of glycis tendon is fixed to the end of sweep lock ankle. And glycis tendon is inserted with sweep lock in the femoral tunnel by tapping. After then, glycis tendon is passed to the posterior tibia side tunnel. And the end of suture, it's over the loop is pulled to the anterior side. Graft is passed to the anterior tunnel and also coming back to the femoral tunnel underneath of ITB over the, the lateral collateral ligament. And it is tied in extended position. When I use the allograft, I choose long, long length tibialis anterior tendon. Two-thirds of tibialis anterior tendon is used ACL, one-third is used for the ALL recon re reconstruction. Second, I'm going to talk about meniscus transplantation. Who needs MAT with ACL reconstruction? If a patient has a total loss of meniscus, MAT is necessary, but not all patients, young and active patients only. Why MAT necessary? ACL injury is combined with meniscus injury, result in higher rotatory laxity. And absence of menis medial meniscus exposes ACL to increased strain. Meniscus allograft lower the strain on the native ACL. More meniscus damage at the time of the ACL reconstruction result in more arthritic change. That, that is the reason. Uh, I prefer to do ACL reconstruction using transportal technique and bone plug technique for medial MAT. This is the sequence and graft preparation and ACL and MAT. First, MAT posterior tunnel is being made. Second, ACL femoral tunnel. Third, ACL tibial tunnel. Fourth, MAT anterior tunnel. After then, MAT meniscal allograft is passed and fixed. After then, ACL graft is passed and fixed. That is the video. So uh, there is, you can see uh, total loss, nearly total loss of the meniscus and ACL. So meniscectomy is performed first. After then, 
We posterior transtep septal portal is being made. This is viewed from the posterior medial portal. And atheroscopy is inserted through posterior medial portal, lateral portal. And suture is applied from the posterior medial portal. I applied two sutures for the uh, all inside suture after pass, passing of the graft. And for the MAT, posterior bone plug tunnel is made. In that case, in, usually I use flat cutter inside out limbing. And femoral HA tunnel is being made. I use a flexible system, clench guide. So this is a femoral tunnel is made. You can see femoral tunnel is made on the anatomic insertion site. And tibial tunnel is being made. So after then, uh, allograft meniscus is passed. And using shuttle relay technique, or inside suture technique is used for the repair of the posterior horn of MAT, meniscus allograft. For the middle body, so I use the inside out suture. This is a PDS double arm needle, which is observable suture. After then, ACL graft is passed and fixed. There is a procedure of symmetry surgery. Finally, I'm going to talk, talk about HTO. Who needs HTO with ACL? So medial compartment always combined with various diplomacy, HTO might be necessary. Why HTO is necessary? So after ACL injury, AP motion and rotation instabilities increase, and medial femoral condyle cartilage loss can aggravate the varus knee. Because of varus knee, varus strain is increased, and ACL retail risk is increased, and there is a vicious cycle. So HTO is necessary. There is a three issues regarding simultaneous surgery. HTO for the primary ACL reconstruction is necessary. Second question is the open wedge or closing wedge. Third question is simultaneous surgery or stage operation. Constitutional virus is very common in Korea, and there is a report that virus does not affect clinical result of a primary ACL reconstruction. So I don't do ACL reconstruction. I don't do HTO for primary ACL reconstruction. Even patient that varus knee, if patient doesn't have a way, I don't do HTO. Closing wedge osteotomy has advantage regarding the posterior slope change, but increase of posterior slope can be uh, is uh, avoidable with open wedge HTO too. So I prefer the open wedge uh, osteotomy, which is uh, easy to control the angle. There is a possibility of a collision of a screw and ACL tibial tunnel. So also difficult to get firm tibia fixation of graft due to osteotomy site. So I prefer to do stage operation. I show you one case. ACL injury is combined with various knee and secondary osteoarthritis changing. I, I performed HTL first. After then one year, when I removed the screw and plate, at that time I performed ACL reconstruction. This is take home message. Who needs more than ACL reconstruction? Patient with high risk rerupture risk patient, maybe we need something. Who has high rerupture risk? Those are risk factor. This risk factor, patient has this factor, so ALL LAT is necessary. No meniscus, MAT is necessary. Arthritis change and berosny, osteotomy is necessary. Thank you for your attention. Hello, everyone. So we'll go for the last talk. 
So I'm talking about the ACL tears in adolescents and in what cases uh, do we need to treat them and we shouldn't treat them as little adults. So these are my disclosures. And we know that teenage ACL tears are an actual epidemic. 65% of all the acute traumatic needs that we will receive in the emergency room will actually be an ACL tear in this population. And it increases more than 2% every year. What is the highest profile patient at risk is a teenage girl multi-sport that accounts at 10% risk of having an ACL tear during high school. And this is, not, this is not only a medical concern, it's all over the news because this is a devastating injury for these patients regarding costs, time loss of sports, uh, evolution to post-traumatic osteoarthritis and the risk of re-injury. So we know that prevention is better than any cure. So there are many uh, prevention programs available. Probably the most popular ones are the FIFA 11 or FIFA 11 kits for patients under 15 years old and the PEP. These are a mix of plyometric strength training, balance, agility, and stretching. And we have substantial evidence supporting their efficacy. So this meta-analysis of meta-analysis published by Kate Webster shows that there is a significant risk reduction and a cost effectiveness of applying these programs with a global reduction of 50% and even more in women. So if we check specifically for teenagers, this is even more important because we see that the risk reduction is significantly higher if we apply these programs in patients under 18 years old. So this is probably the most important message of my talk that the ACL prevention programs are a must do in this population. But what do we do if prevention fails and we already have an ACL tier? So conservative treatment, as we've uh, talked before in this webinar, shows subsequent meniscal and chondral injuries, persistent instability, and a low return to sport in this young patients. And this recent multicenter study showed that even a week of delay gives 2% more risk of meniscal tears, and 10-week delays accounts for 20% more risk of subsequent secondary meniscal tears. So we reserve conservative treatment for specific patients, those low demand patients that are not involved in pivoting sports or willing to modify their activities, partial tears with minimal stability, or it can also be a strategy to win some time, either psychological or skeletal maturity in these patients, but it's very important to keep a close follow-up. What are the benefits and risks that we are handling when we talk about teenage patients with ACL tears? It's growth arrests and failure rates, what we think, but it's probably this last one, the real problem. Why is it this? Because this meta-analysis showed that growth abnormalities are pretty rare, not more than 4%, and only 1% are clinically significant that require a correction. Whereas if we see failure, this is at least twice as frequent, and most of them will require revision surgery. So this is the real problem. So what are my two pillars when handling these patients? First is that we need to estimate growth remaining to see in which patients we need to use techniques that avoid a growth arrest, that is a devastating complication. And also the importance of focusing on how to reduce the failure rates. And we will check this in detail. So how do we estimate growth remaining? This is like predicting the weather. We know that Tanner and chronological age are not reliable tools. And so far the bone age is the best assessment that we have. We can use any of the hand atlases that are available, or there are also some tools that are validated in knee MRI and that uh, avoids us to take a hand x-ray. And the important thing is that we recognize those patients that have a closing physis, 
meaning less than one year of growth remaining. And we can do adult-like reconstructions and recognize from those that have a significant growth remaining, meaning one and between one and two and three years of growth remaining, that we need to do a facial respecting technique because we don't want to produce a significant injury to the growth plate right in the growth spurts. So there are many tables like these that summarize the different alternatives uh, considering the bone age of the patients. So in boys, we have between 13 and 16 years old before they reach skeletal maturity. This is a bit earlier for girls. And we can see that we have mainly three possible techniques that can be applied in this uh, age group. It's mainly the all epiphyseal, the partial transfacial or hybrid techniques, and the transfacial respecting techniques. So we have summarized in this article that we published recently that there are no significant differences in the available literature regarding these three, uh, re regarding growth arrest or more risk of failure. So the three of them are valid alternatives, but we have to be comfortable with the pros and cons of each. So all epiphyseal techniques are being less used in the last years, mainly because it's technically demanding, requires specific guides. Uh, it's particularly difficult in the tibia. It provides very short tibial tunnels. And in spite of being under the growth plate, it can produce uh, growth arrest through femur overgrowth. And in the last studies, it has shown a trend towards a higher re-rupture. The partial transfacial also need specific guides and intraoperative fluoroscopy that can be time consuming, but it's a simple technique, especially in the tibia. It keeps the anatomic placement of the femur and can use a uh, a bigger diameter of the graft. On the other hand, the transfacial respecting techniques uh, always have the concern about trying to go a bit more vertical in the femur to get uh, um, less anatomic placement and maybe rotational instability. Also usually requires uh, smaller graft diameters, but it's a technique that we are more familiar with, similar to the one we do in adults, and it has a lot of evidence backing it up. So probably these two are the most frequently used techniques in teenagers. So now we will focus on how can we reduce the failure rate in these populations. So we know that allografts are not a good idea in, this, uh, in these patients. They have more than five times their risk of failure compared to allografts, so we should avoid them. Then the size of the graft also matters. We have the classical studies that put a cutoff point in eight millimeters. More recent studies have shown that uh, below seven, there's more, more failure. So it's important that we keep this in mind. If you're using hamstrings, make sure you triplicate them if you don't get a seven millimeter diameter or another option is using quads grafts where the diameter is more predictable. Then what about extraticular procedures? We talked about this already in the webinar. Specifically in this population, stability groups has shown that there's a statistically significant and clinically relevant reduction in the graft rupture and the persistent rotator laxity. So we should definitely consider adding these procedures in this population. Regarding return to sports, we know that young patients, when they go back to pivoting sports, have a very high risk of re-injury or contralateral injury. And this is seven times more if they go back before nine months. So specifically in this group, uh, we try to hold them for at least 12 months. We make sure they have an optimal rehab, that we measure outcomes, and that they keep doing prevention strategies for secondary injury. So we will round up everything with a case. This is a 13-year-old boy, bone age, amateur soccer player that underwent one year of conservative treatment after an ACL injury and has a knee failure in a jumping bed. Comes with effusion, pain, and a positive Lachman and pivot shifts. We see the MRI, there's a probably non-acute ACL tear with a recent failure and the classic associated injuries 
that we can see a root tear of the lateral meniscus and a rump injury. So we start by marking the growth plates under fluoroscopy. This helps us to avoid unnecessary fluoroscopy during surgery. Then we harvest the semi-T and the gracilis. Make sure in these patients that you avoid perichondral ring injury. It can uh, produce a recurvatum deformity. And we get, fortunately, a four-strand semi-T and gracilis uh, graft that we put in a cortical bottom and use one common same soak. Diagnostic arthroscopy shows the absence of the ACL and we, the root tear that we suspected that we repair at the same time. Also, we repair the rump uh, injury. And then we mark our formal footprint in the anatomic position. And we use this pediatric uh, ACL guides that are set in 90 degrees. And here it's important that we have two options for the femoral, so for the all epiphyseal femoral sockets. You can go direct lateral or anterolateral. And as Kevin Shi very nicely showed in this study, the anterolateral direction gives you a longer tunnel and a bigger safe area without injuring the popliteus and the LCL. So this is what we do. We make sure we're under the growth plates and then we aim our guide 35 to 45 degrees anteriorly, then we get an anterolateral femoral socket. For the tibia, uh, if this would be the regular position that you would put your guide for adult reconstructions, we try to go a bit more central and vertical without changing the exit point that you see in your articulation. And you're gonna see with your scope how your tunnel goes through the growth plate. So that's the final position of our graph. We check that there's no impingement. And finally, since we already talked, this is a high-risk patient going back to pivot sports. So we add a lateral extraticular tenodesis with the ITVS strip that we pass deep to the LCL. And this is another important tip in this patient. I fix it with anchors and we wanna go uh, proximal and posterior to the lateral epicondyl, but always make sure you're not right in the growth plate, just a bit uh, distal, not because you can make a growth rest, but because the anchor can pull out. So that is the final x-rays, the MRI showing that the socket is all epiphyseal, and we follow up these patients until skeletal maturity to make sure they don't have any growth arrests. So the take-home message of this talk is that we shouldn't treat these patients as little adults, that there are high-risk patients that we need to apply prevention strategies for both primary and secondary injury, that we need to focus in reducing the failure rate by the correct use of the grafts, extraticular procedures, and an optimal rehab, and that we need to identify those patients that have a significant growth remaining that we should uh, do their ACLs with facial respecting techniques. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Maria and uh, all of our fantastic speakers. Uh, that's been a wonderful collection of talks covering all of the areas of management of ACL reconstruction. Uh, we've had quite a few questions come through. I think a lot of them we've tried to answer online, but um, I might uh, ask a question now and then I'll ask my co-chair uh, Patrick Jung to ask a question. Uh, yeah. I'd like to come to Seth, Seth and James. So Seth, um, when we look at the literature around ACL repair, the most successful ones usually are the, the type one tears, the more proximal ones, which I think a lot of people uh, would probably argue could be managed non-surgically. So do you think there's a need to compare ACL repair in these non-surgical treatment? And I'd be interested in James' opinion as well. Maybe you can go first, Seth. Yeah, 
uh, you know, it was interesting to see James talk right before mine. And uh, I made a comment on, you know, the laundry list of, of relative kind of indications or patients who did reasonably well with non-op was, you know, quite overlapping with the one that, that I had. Uh, uh, certainly there was some crossover in his group that's concerning and uh, maybe that could be avoidable in repair. Of course, it would be great to have head-to-head -head, uh, studies on it. And I probably would exclude certain patients uh, that we could discuss, you know, when developing a protocol, particularly repairable menisci or other low-hanging fruit that I think would move us towards, uh, you know, clearly a surgical direction. But uh, James, what are your uh, what are your thoughts on this? I said they're really interesting seeing your list, and I, I can remember a a clinic I did recently with the sort of seeing about eight female skiers about age 45 to 60 in a row all had that sort of interstitial tear or, or injury towards the femoral attachment um, they've got low-grade instability when you exam and, and I've ended up reconstructing about one of them um, you know and they are they do well a lot of them do well with with with, with conservative treatment it's just interesting that, that that is the group that originally Fagan was perhaps doing the reconstructions on and uh, the repairs on uh, and I think that that would be a great study is to just show whether the benefits were better with a adding the repair. I suspect, I guess, similar to some of the ACL reconstruction randomized controlled study, one of the uh, versus rehab, one of the metrics that you, you end up, which is favored with surgery is, is, is stability. So if you actually objectively measure the stability, that's the thing that's better, but actually in terms of what patients report, not a lot of difference so it would be a great study to run um and i guess one thing I'd, i would always say I, I caveat all of our talks by the fact it very much depends on your patient population and your patient expectations um uh, one of those ladies i could call in my skin was an american lady and she has very very different expectations as to what's going to happen to her treatment than than most of my british patients um and uh, she was, you know, she wanted an ACL reconstruction. She wanted it done yesterday. David, I think regardless, we'd want to standardize, obviously, rehabilitation protocols and return to sport, you know, in those kind of situations, uh, repair versus non-op. So it would be an interesting study to do. We'd need multiple centers uh, across the world to do it. Could be an interesting ISACOS initiative. Okay, Seth, well, I'm going to charge you with getting that study started. Patrick, did you have a question? Oh, uh, yeah, uh, I think uh, in the Q&A box, there are quite a number of questions. Some have been answered, um, you know, uh, in the Q&A box, right? Um, I think one of the most popular questions is about uh, the rehabilitations, the difference between reconstructions versus repair, right? So maybe maybe just for, um, since James and Seth, you have been doing uh, some repair right, of the ACL. So how is this difference between your cases of reconstructions versus repair? in terms of rehabilitation? I can jump in very briefly. Um, very different early, and then kind of all kind of molds into one a, a bit later phases uh, is the short take home. There's uh, the bear protocols written online. You can uh, see it and go through it, but it's partial weight bearing and graduated range of motion. And so I'm interested to hear from the recon docs. I'll let them who gave the talk speak on their protocols for recons, but in general, mine are pretty, aggressive as far as weight bearing is tolerated range is tolerated i'm sure most of you don't even use braces for a lot of cases you know we use more braces in america so uh mm. very, very much slower on the front end is the take-home point i see how about james 
Well, I declare. I'm, I, so I'm, I have to declare I'm not a repair guy. So it's not, okay. not something I, I've done. But but interesting in contrast to Seth, I'm I'm pretty slow on my ACL rehab. I'm, I'm, I'm I, I like to slow them down early. Um, I, I don't. You know, a lot of the studies show that early stretch out of, with, with, with these sort of more aggr aggressive protocols, particularly it's graft specific. So for the mm -hmm. soft tissue grafts, I'm worried about, you know, healing of that, that graft. So I don't expose that to early cyclic loading. Um, and uh, I think for me that I was going to caveat the fact I don't repair, you know, I, I consider, you know, ACL augmentation of trying to run up some biology, you know, putting a, you know, hamstring graft up through that ACL remnant, I think is, is, is a good option. If you like, that's a sort of biological type repair, but I've not, I've not gone to, to yet repairing the stump uh, to the wall. So that's not something I've done. Okay. Well, uh, uh, David, I have a follow-up questions very related, which um, relate with the first two topics and indeed been asked by one of the, you know, attendees. It's about cross bracing. Well, I've definitely, I think David has a lot to say because he's from Melbourne and, and an Australian group, right? This year, they, they published a paper and talked about the cross bracing and then a lot of, you know, discussions on that, right? And that's talking about, you know, bracing the knee in a certain position and heal the ACL, right, without surgery, right? So anyone go through that and, and maybe David can supplement that, right? Yes, I, I can probably add to that. So that's a technique developed by Tom Cross, who's in Sydney, Australia. Mm -hmm. um, and he's published a case series of, I think, about 200 patients. So he puts the patients in a brace at 90 degrees. He has a few variations on the bracing protocol and he reports some success and actually our research group is having discussions with Tom now about trying to do a slightly higher level study so I think they've they've have an observational study showing that it is possible for things to heal um, but they've got some successes they've got some failures and I think it needs a higher level study but it certainly um, captured the imagination of people within Australia and I think beyond I think it's made it to the American media now uh, even so, all around yeah sorry to interrupt but yeah no it's interesting i mean there have been various techniques over the years designed at trying to reduce straight you know to, to brace with the aim of primary healing of the acl um, i dole that right back to the present my, my talk you know the study we did in 2005 that was a japanese protocol that was used and employed uh, looking at, at at reducing that strain on, on the ligament to, to promote healing the issue was, was yes, there was evidence of healing, even in patients with some of them who'd had a, a positive pivot shift from initial injury. The problem is how good is that tissue for what level of sport that you do? And, and even in those ones that look really quite good on MRI, the, the higher level competitive athletes, I guess, just like Seth was talking about with the repairs, we worry about our repairs in high level young pivoting sports people and this seems to be consistent that that a healed ACL may not function as well as a graft for that group of patients uh, but right. kind of watch this space with that new bracing technique yes so so we're, we're hoping to do a, a study James where we compare reconstruction to rehabilitation without a brace to rehabilitation with the brace under Tom Cross's supervision and and as well as laxity testing uh, functional testing return to sport testing we're also going to do three-dimensional mri scans to look at the healing of the mri of the acl um but i i have a question along those lines for the repair field made for you seth um do you think it's there's any merit uh, in adding an let to your repair 
to protect the repair. Because when we repair, we sort of take them back at best to the way they were when they tore their ACL with a non-contact injury. Um, yeah. So do you think we need to do more to an ACL repair? Than I don't know. For me, if I'm at a point where I'm thinking about doing more, like the other talks suggest, then I'm going towards my standard of care, ACL reconstruction plus LET. And I'm trying to, you know, really, you know, solve probably a more challenging problem. I mean, we're talking non-op versus maybe repairing. That's very different than repair and adding more to to try to get it closer to, you know, tackling that that you know higher level athletes. I, I worry about that, Dave. I, I'm not. I haven't jumped there yet. Uh, I don't think it's wrong to consider that. But that's more surgery. That's another incision. That's does slightly change your rehab, your protocol. We don't have data on that combo. I mean, I, I just, it, it's not for, for my mindset at the moment. It's, it's a slightly different uh, overlapping Venn diagram of patient population I think you're getting into there. Yeah. I just wonder if we think it's worth adding it to a reconstruction, which is the standard of care, mm. would you not be some merit in adding to an ACL repair? But I'd, to- I'd be open to studying that. I don't think that we should just, you know, start doing more repairs because we're protecting it with an LET. I think that's probably the wrong kind of message. I think we should be filtering uh, that smaller population of people that may be amenable for repair or not up and, and not necessarily trying to, you know, expand those indications till we have kind of more uh, global data, I guess. Sure. Patrick. Yeah. Uh, for, for Zhu Ho Wang, right? Um, well, why you do uh, ALL rather than LET? Well, you, do you have any preference? Because one of the you know you know attendees asked about these questions about why not LET, right? <laughs> Actually, I have no comparison between LET and ALL reconstruction. So for the ALL reconstruction, incision is small and minimal invasive than the LET. That's the reason I choose LET and ALL. But I'm also considering to use LET. Do you know, I, I am in London now to see the surgery. To, I'm, I'm going to the Andy Williams okay. the clinic <laughs> next week. I'm now in London. So I'm considering also <laughs> ALS. So actually, Andy, so there is no, to join. <laughs> <Okay. yeah. laughs> there is no evidence which one is better. So yeah, small incision, that is the only reason I use now. So. Okay, okay. Yeah, um, regarding the preservation of tissue, so I, I think so. Also, it is good to use remnant preservation technique. So, some many patient has a long enough good quality, even doesn't have, have function. So, suture the remnant tissue and also augmented with the the hamstring tendon. Also, the uh, there is also good option for the patient. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, Rasoki, can you ask you a question? Yeah. So, so you talk about ACL reconstructions, right? So do you do any repair or at what circumstances do you add on something like what uh, Zhou Hang has been mentioned, like LET, well, sorry, ALL or osteotomy, right? Yeah, for me, uh, uh, I don't do a primary repair of ACL because I, I used to do some uh, small study and uh, I have I had a uh, bad results uh, because the patient are uh, athletes, uh, so uh, I stopped uh, repair uh, primary repair. So the ACL reconstruction, uh, I do some uh, LET, not not ALE reconstruction for the patient with uh, 
general joint laxity, uh, Baton score is uh, more than four of nine and uh, uh, posterior tibial slope uh, more than 12 degrees and uh, also uh, unrepairable meniscus uh, injury. I do uh, uh, LED extra articular tenodesis. Good, All right? Thank you. So, um, Maria, right? So maybe can I follow on that, right? So Maria, uh, one of the attendees uh, asked the questions: What is the lowest limit of your ACL reconstruction in pediatric patients? What is your your own history, right? Youngest age. Well, yeah. So it's very rare to see the ACL injuries in patients under six or seven years old. I think my youngest is a seven-year-old patient. Okay. Uh, we have congenital absences and ages lower than that, but I would mm. say the most common injury that we're seeing nowadays is, as the talk I, I mentioned there, that's pediatric uh, ACL injuries are at the teenagers. So it's very rare to see the very young ones and mm. that it's a very different scenario. Yeah. For that cases, I usually do modified max, so mm. iliotibial band uh, reconstructions. So it's both an extra and an intra reconstruction. But for teenagers, the technique that I just mentioned. I see. I see. So interesting, if we combine all these topics, right? We talk about LET, ALL, and then indeed that has been there for years. And we talk about ACL repair, that has been there for years. But then, you know, and then now we come back and talk about all this, you know. So all these techniques is like, you know, forever true, right? Okay, David, any questions? Sure. Um, for Maria, um, I mean, you talked about the younger patients and if we think about what happens in Scandinavia I think they almost always trial non-surgical treatment and surgery is for failure of non-surgical treatment do you see a role for non-surgical treatment for pediatric patients at any stage and I'm assuming we're talking about kids who are active yeah so that's a very interesting question it's definitely a controversial topic so Dr. Inge Bretson has shown a lot of data on that uh, they usually, the Nordics, they try and conservative treatments on the first uh, option. But what we've seen in their studies is they have a big shift towards reconstruction. And also conservative treatment requires modifying their activities. So in our scenario, most of the patients are very active. They're willing to go back to pivot in sports. And we have substantial data showing that if patients go back to pivot in sports, and our young teenagers, the risk of subsequent chondral or meniscal injuries is very high. So in my practice, most of the patients that are not willing to modify their activities or that are high demand patients, uh, I avoid conservative treatment. My experience has been really bad with conservative treatment. As the case that I showed, many of the patients have subsequent failures just playing. Maybe they're not doing soccer or rugby, but they can be jumping and in a playground and they have subsequent injuries that alter their prognosis. So I would advise uh, knee surgeons to be aware in this population. If you apply conservative treatment, you have to make a close follow-up and be very sure that they're not having knee failures. Well, thanks, Maria. We've had a few questions about osteoarthritis. Um, maybe I'll go to Raisuke. Uh, people have asked about ACL reconstruction and preventing arthritis. Is there any evidence, Rasuka? Do you think that when we do reconstruction, we prevent osteoarthritis for these patients? Is that a reason to do surgery? You're, mute, uh, You're muted. You're I, muted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, uh, the good question. Uh, you know, the, that cohort study, uh, non-surgical uh, patient become osteoarthritis, uh, but even SA reconstruction patient become a little osteoarthritis, but it's quite different between the non-surgical group and the SA reconstruction group. And, uh, uh, but probably that is the reason of uh, meniscus injury, uh, some other high-risk patients. Uh, so uh, the, I, I do uh, some chronic case I, and also arthritis case. I do AC reconstruction with uh, HTO, but some osteoarthritis patient with ACL deficient knee is very stiff. And sometimes I do just uh, HTO. Uh, then after still unstable, we do a second stage AC reconstruction. Is, is the answer of your question? Yeah, I mean, maybe I could go to Seth as well. I think, Seth, you had something in your talk about you know, prevention of osteoarthritis. Um, do you think we have any evidence that any of the surgeries that we do, repair, reconstruction, prevent? Yeah, I, think, yeah, I mean, I think if you have uh, patients with continued functional instability, chronic neglected ACLs, they'll destroy their knee. And I think we've all seen those at various time points after. So that's kind of obviously the non-surgical, very highly active patient that should have been repaired or reconstructed in the first place. But then there's, you know, the patients, I can't tell patients, I'm going to do your reconstruction and I'm going to prevent OA, right? That's not reality. We know there are percentages of patients who go on to osteoarthritis. So I counsel them, they're going to have more OA than their other knee and more than other people. However, if we can protect their meniscus, protect their cartilage, get them better functional stability, then I think we can reduce that more linear trajectory or downhill slope towards osteoarthritis. So in a roundabout way, I think by protecting the other structures, we are reducing their relative risk of OA uh, versus their baseline, but not directly because we put in an ACL. And if they get stiff, and if they lose mobility and terminal extension and their quad atrophies, then we're in deep trouble. We, or if we put the tunnels in the wrong place, then we accelerate their relative risk over their baseline. And so that's kind of my, my spiel or my, um, my counseling to people in 2023. Yeah, no, no. Great, great answer. Just a question for Jun Ho. We had a question on the line about uh, LET or any sort of lateral procedure and the risk of lateral compartment disease and yeah you know, we've seen um cadaveric studies that have shown no increased pressure we've seen recent studies from sonary catet with longer term follow-up showing no increased risk of arthritis uh, is that a concern for you junho when you're doing the lateral procedure do you think it increases the risk of lateral compartment disease in the future uh, I, I know there is some concern about upper constraint of the lateral structure so uh, there is possible but the basically the the, uh, the we, when we do the aerial reconstruction so main fun the function is important the function main function of aerial is in extended position the the fixation point getting longer in extended position position this flexed state so it is a slackened flexed so permit rotation, then I think there is no over constraint when you find the exact position. So I, I don't have concern about over constraint and related arthritis chain. Great, thank you. Yes, I mean, we've done some cadaveric studies showing minimal change in the compartment pressures with the Lemaire procedures um, and Sonnery Catet published recently some longer term studies with the Lemaire showing no increased risk of arthritis. Uh, 
I think a lot of people these days think that protect a lateral compartment by stopping the instability is is the um, appropriate way to look at that. Uh, Patrick, did you have any more questions? Uh, no, I think I have just checked through the q and I think we have answered most of the questions, right? And, and uh, particularly for those related with the topics on today, right? I think it's also time now, right, David, right? Yes, yes. I think, look, I think it's been a great webinar. I can see we've still got 300 registrants online. So, so thank you all for sticking around. I'd particularly like to thank our speakers, you know, James Robinson, Seth Sherman, Raisuka Kuroda, Junho Wong, and Maria Chuka. They have fantastic talks. And I think they also, they're very contemporary, they're very topical, and they all complemented each other. So look, on behalf of um, Isikos, uh, I'd like to thank APCAS for the participation in this webinar. I think it's been a really good educational event. Um, please, uh, as we've said, the it's been recorded. So feel free to uh, go on the ISCOS website. You can read the recording. And I'd like to wish you all a very happy weekend and look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank, Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.